This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Today we're rebroadcasting Terry's interview with pianist Jeremy Dank. When it aired originally in March, it was preempted on many stations by coverage of the Supreme Court nomination hearings of Katanji Brown-Jackson. Here's Terry. My guest is pianist Jeremy Dank. If you've ever taken music lessons or if you appreciate the insights musicians share about the music they play, I think you'll enjoy what he has to say. He's an acclaimed classical pianist who's also a fine writer with a gift for explaining the structure of the pieces he performs and what makes them technically and emotionally exciting. He's written a new memoir called Every Good Boy Does Fine, a love story in music lessons. The title refers to a phrase children learn when they first start to read music to help them memorize the notes on the five lines of the treble clef. Those notes, E-G-B-D-F, correspond to the first letter of each word in Every Good Boy Does Fine. The book is about how he learned to play, the teachers who shaped him, and what it was like to be a classical prodigy in a world where few kids cared about classical music and some truly hated it. Dank received a MacArthur Fellowship, a.k.a. the Genius Award, and the Avery Fisher Prize. His recording of the Goldberg Variations reached number one on the Billboard Classical Chart. His album of compositions by Beethoven and Ligeti was named one of the best discs of the year by The New Yorker, NPR, and The Washington Post. In The New York Times, music critic Steve Smith wrote that Dank is a pianist you want to hear no matter what he performs, and that his interpretations conveyed the sense of composers grappling with the ineffable, inventing new vocabulary to express the inexpressible. Jeremy Dank, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's such a pleasure to have you back on our show. Uh, You have a really interesting album from a couple of years ago in which you play piano music from 1300 to 2000. So the album is aptly called Circa 1300 to Circa 2000. (laughs) So I want to start with a Bach piece from that album. This is Bach's Chromatic Fantasy and Fugue in D minor. Um, Can you just say a little bit about why you love this piece and why you chose it for this album? You know, I love all the pieces uh, of Bach where you get a taste of him maybe improvising and his virtuosity, both as a composer, of course, you know, but as, as a performer, this sense of touching the keyboard at the beginning, um, playing some scales to sort of hear how it sounds, you know, hearing how the harmonies play against each other, and then beginning to explore the world of harmony bit by bit, you know. And it's, it's called chromatic fantasy because it explores not just the notes of the normal D minor scale, but all the naughty notes in between, you know? Um, And he really makes a point of visiting the weirdest chords that he can and trying to make harmonic sense of them, um, something he loved doing. So, yeah, I guess I feel like I'm slightly channeling Bach a little bit when when you play this piece. The demonic elements of Bach and then the really sublime parts of him, too. Well, let's hear it. This is Jeremy Dank at the piano. Thank you. 
was Jeremy Dank playing the Bach chromatic fantasia and fugue in D minor. So, Jeremy, that's why you have to learn to play scales, right? That's where all, <laughs> all of your work, like learning scales, learning scales, playing them over, over and over again, really pays off because you can just, that is such a complicated piece. But it's built on, it's built on scales. It's bu- built on scales, and then there's all these kind of whorls and curls and curly cues and, and uh, you know, uh, kind of devilish turns within the scales. But yes, there, there was a reason why you had to suffer all those years of piano lessons. Your book is so much about piano lessons. Did you hate it when you had to spend hours and hours earlier in your life playing scales? And when, like, some of your teachers didn't even want to play music with you, you know, have you play music for them until you mastered, like, the basics, the scales? Yeah, my, my teacher, when I was in my you know, early teens, we spent summers basically only on technique with very little music, right? And, and those were his moments to sort of have me under his control and build a foundation. And I admit, I didn't love those summers, though I would probably not be a pianist without them. Uh, I think one of the real problems when you're practicing, at least for me when I was a kid, is you just don't know what the point of all that time is. You repeat something over and over, you know, hundreds of times. And at a certain point, there's a futility and you're not sure what you're doing, what you're changing, what what the job is you're really engaged in. And that's one of the hardest tasks for a teacher, I think, is to make it clear to the, to the student what practicing is about. Well, how, how did they make it clear to you in a meaningful way? Well, a lot of it, of course, is like a, like you would do with a tennis coach, right? Or Or whatever. You have to pay attention to physical changes that you have to make and you have to kind of try to build certain physical habits and get rid of others. And and lately I've come up with a little bit of a formula that I use, which is every time you try to play something again, you explain to yourself um, what the physical changes you're going to make to make it better the next time. Uh, and that's that slows you down. Physical, like in your hands? Yeah, are you going to raise your thumb more? Are you going to bring your second finger down more slowly? Are you going to use your wrist more? Are you going to engage the arm? You know, it could be a lot of different things. But for me anyway, uh, it often it, you really have to remember the role of the body in, in making the music sing. In the piece that we heard, the Bach piece, it's a very complicated piece. You're playing lots of notes in, in each hand at a, at a rapid speed. Um, and you also have to breathe. And I, you know, speaking for myself, when I'm doing something really complicated, I don't think I actually breathe. <laughs> or if I do breathe, it's really shallow breathing. Did you have to learn how to breathe while playing? Yeah, most definitely I did. And, and I still do. Um, and one of the beautiful things that Shebuck explained that I maybe didn't put in the book, uh, my teacher, George Shebuck in Bloomington, was that there is a beautiful parallel between you know breathing with your lungs, as we all do <laughs> and must do, and the kind of breathing of the muscles in the act of piano playing, you know, releasing your wrist or elbow or whatever it is. And he would often show you know, his arms uh, like, a, like a bellows, kind of, uh, allowing the sound to blossom because you let the muscles release the energy that you put into the piano. And that is a lesson that I keep having to teach myself, especially, you know, in nervous situations, because your body begins to 
breathe less, right, by, by the nature of adrenaline or, or breathe differently. Uh, and that's a whole other study to figure out how to cope with that in front of a public. So you mentioned your teacher, Georges Schubert, who was your teacher when you were at Oberlin in your final year there. And uh, he was a pianist from Hungary who'd performed with the top musicians and conductors, and I'll tell you stories about them. What did he teach you about uh, breathing? Because he, he talked to you about different composers' breaths. I'm not really sure what that means. What did that mean to you? Well, each for him it was very important um, that each composer kind of spoke his or her own language. And those languages relied on different kinds of breaths. For example, Bach you know, loves to elide. He loves to create these kind of endless rivers of notes, you know. Um, and there are very few rests in, in Bach. But by the time you get to Mozart, you know, 70 years later or whatever, almost everything is about little clipped phrases with tiny commas and punctuation between them, right? And the way that you hear those little silences and the way that you think about them often changing character from one thing to another, you know, from the imperious count or whatever to the, you know, pleading Susanna or whatever. Um, the way that you thought about the punctuation changed everything, yeah? And so you had to think about the breaths between the phrases as much as, as anything else because they, they indicated when you changed from one person to another in a way. Uh, and Schumann breathes quite differently. You know, he's full of this ardent, romantic, <laughs> you know, often palpitating, you know, incredibly intense um, music. And, and you have to figure out how to find um, repose within his, you know, romantic frenzy. So I want to play another piece, and this piece is earlier than the Bach piece that we heard. And this is by Henry Purcell. It's called Ground in C Minor. It's very beautiful, and it's much more spare than the Bach that we heard. Can you talk about this piece and what, re what, what it represents in music history and why you love it? Well, I think, first of all, it's beautiful on its own account, right? Uh, <laughs> and I was creating a program sort of chaining you know, musical style from, from the earliest you know, uh, medieval times, classical, Western classical musical style, that is. Um, and I was interested in this sort of proto- um, Baroque time, you know, sort of what we consider to be tonality and harmony beginning to evolve out of a totally different language. Um, and this piece seemed to me a kind of wonderful plaintive representation of that. And also the sort of joy of the ground bass. I was interested in the, <laughs> you know, the this sort of walking bass um, in relation to some earlier madrigal that I had played on the album. So... Uh, I don't know if that explains your... It, I think partly I chose it just because I love it also. Yeah, it's beautiful. So this is uh, Henry Purcell's Ground in C Minor performed by my guest Jeremy Dank.
That's Jeremy Dank at the piano from his album of music from 1300 to 2000. Let's take a short break here, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining me, my guest is the great pianist Jeremy Dank. His new memoir is called Every Good Boy Does Fine, a love story in music lessons. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. Let's talk about your parents and your early lessons. Your mother would be in, a, in another room kind of hollering out <laughs> her, her critique of your playing. Um, you're not the only uh, people far less talented than you <laughs> experience that too. So tell us, tell us what your mother would yell out to you while you were practicing. Well, for her, there was a two-tier grading system. <laughs> uh, either the music danced or it didn't dance, you know. So I'd be there in the middle of you know practicing something, probably for the tenth time, and completely you know losing interest in whatever piece I was playing. And she'd like, "It's not dancing! It's not dancing!" And she'd be in the kitchen, you know, smoking or whatever. And and this was, you know, as you can imagine, completely infuriating to me. You know, and I thought often to myself, "Well, why don't you come here and play it if it, <laughs> if you want it to be better, or stuff like that?" Right? Um, unfortunately, I think my mom's instincts were often reasonably good for someone who had no real music education, but she knew when the music was charming and when it was not. While we're talking about your parents' feedback, what did your father have to say about your music when you were young? Well, my father, um, he, both of them loved music, you know. Uh, he always wanted me to play this one Bach chorale, one very sad Bach chorale. He, he, it was called Come Sweet Death, and he kept begging me, you know, every time he came home from work, Jeremy, play Come Sweet Death. And then I would often want to play it a little bit. I was often impatient and just wanted to play it and get it over with, and he's like, no, no, with feeling. Um, but I, he didn't want to impose so much in the details of my practicing. He just wanted me to practice more all the time, and he wanted to be sure that I was being responsible to my talent, you know, that that was the most important thing in, my, in you know, how I spent my time and how I, if I had a gift, I had to devote work. And so I always had the, you know, he, he was a very, <laughs> you know, both of them were very work ethic parents, you know. Um, you call Beethoven your nemesis when you were, <laughs> when you were learning to play. Why was he your, ne your nemesis? Well, Beethoven's very hard, you know. <laughs> I was pretty good up through the Pathetique Sonata, which, you know, I played when I was, whatever, 13, 14. And then I came to the Waldstein. And, you know, the Waldstein, I think most pianists would say, is about as hard as anything that any pianist would have to play. And, and I didn't really appreciate that. You know, I, I didn't really realize at 15 that I'd come to the, you know, the top of Mount Everest and I was try trying to climb it without any crampons or whatever. Uh, so, you know, I kept bashing my head against the wall of all the impossible things in that piece. And it wasn't until really Shebuk, you know, many years later, and he began to show me, you know, what there was to love about Beethoven and to show me how to also use my body better to surmount some of these obstacles, you know, not, not to make mountains out of molehills. Well, you, you have a Beethoven piece, the Piano Sonata, number 32 in C minor, on your album of 700 years of music. How would you rate that? And it's a beautiful piece. It's a very, very percussive and emotional piece. But um, 
how would you rate it in terms of ne- Beethoven being your nemesis? Is this a nemesis kind of piece or is this a relatively easy one for you? <laughs> I've played it a lot. It still has some places that are a little nemesis for me um, because they're very awkward. And I think Beethoven's somewhat specialized in awkward. And that particular piece is a kind of a limit piece for him. He's, it's his last sonata. He's reached the end of the line. And in a way, the first movement of that sonata is about impossibility, about music that can no longer be written, styles that, that don't quite mix together, and, and it's constantly searching for something that it never quite finds. So I think the difficulty, the technical difficulty, luckily in this case, uh, matches up with the sense of what the music is supposed to feel like. Whereas in the Waldstein, you know, in the last movement of the Waldstein, you're supposed to create this unbelievable, serene, glorious sense of unfolding, you know, and, and technical struggle is not really useful to the musical exp- expression. <laughs> what do you love about this piano sonata in C minor? Um, partly also, the, it says it's in C minor, but it's really in C minor, then it becomes in C major for the second two-thirds of itself. Uh, and, you know, it's like a piece where you have a problem in the first movement and its solution in the second movement. And the solution is so far removed, you know, this unbelievable unfolding of time that happens um, in the second movement, the patient and bizarre unfolding and the sense of the kind of space around the notes. And, you know, the, he never, I don't think he ever again wrote anything quite as amazing as, for me, you know, as that in terms of a vision of what piano music could be. Well, but let's hear it. This is Jeremy Dank at the piano playing Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number no. 32 in C minor. The first piano you had was from a burlesque house in Atlantic City. Can you describe the piano and how your family ended up owning it? Of course. Um, actually, my first piano was my mom's heirloom. You know, it was just like a little brown spinet. You know, that just sat in the corner of our 
of Ardennes for many years. And that's what I started on for the first year. But then, you're right, my, my teacher, my new teacher, Lillian Livingston, who was an amazing and serious teacher in New Jersey with lots of kids, she said my, to my parents that I had to have a better instrument. And there wasn't money to buy a fancy piano. So uh, Lillian put my parents in touch with some piano technician, and he had been rebuilding this piano that he found, that he got you know, basically for free from a burlesque house in Atlantic City. And it was covered with um, graffiti, filthy graffiti, honestly. <laughs> uh, it had been <laughs> carved in you know, various letters, RF loves TK or whatever, and then ladies like it, and some other things that I probably shouldn't <laughs> say on the air. And also, it didn't have wheels, you know? It just was on these, like, little blocks that, were, that he'd built to sort of keep the piano in place. So once you got the piano in a place in the house, there was no moving it, you know? So it came into the middle of the den, more or less disrupting the entire TV-watching area. <laughs> and that was how I practiced, you know, from age, from age six or seven on, as in the middle of everyone's lives, on this hideous instrument. You write about something called key speed, and you say it's the most important and infuriatingly subtle variable of piano playing. I don't know what it is. What is it? Uh, the speed at which your finger enters the key. And it's, it's even more complicated than that, because most often, right, you don't enter at a uniform speed. You're either speeding up or slowing down, right? And as Shebuk said at one point or another, Every piano, no matter the most dismal piano, if you find the right key speed, it has a beautiful voice, a beautiful singing voice in it, and you can find it. It's such a fascinating and beautiful part of piano playing is you have this big machine in front of you, which seems completely unyielding and, and awkward and hard to move and mechanical in many ways, and yet it responds if you caress it a certain way or just a little bit more urgently or you play as if you're as if the key was a hot potato and you want to drop it you know all these things create vastly different sounds and feelings you know and i and if i you know key speed sounds like a really abstract thing but i think it's one of the really important parts of piano playing and varying the speed with which you play into the key is one of our best tools for telling a story as a musician for shaping a melody for example or or anything you know You've had so many different teachers over the years, and um, some of them seemed more mean, and some of them seemed more warm in their approach. What were you most uh, receptive to? Like, what, what kind of feedback did you find helpful, and what kind of feedback did you find just kind of intolerable and would maybe even make you cry? You know, I think I needed different kinds of teachers at different points in my life. I think, you know, one of the reasons that I had such difficulty, one of the reasons I had such difficulty with, you know, my teacher at Oberlin when I got there, Joseph Schwartz, who was a wonderful teacher and a wonderful pianist, still is. Uh, he was so much like my father in many ways, you know. He was, he was a little bit, you know, he didn't want to go overboard emotionally, he didn't want to micromanage. Every so often he would lose his patience. And those moments, I think they resonated so much from my past that I began to tune Joseph out. Um, and I definitely even by the, you know, the middle of my sophomore year, I barely remember my lessons with him as if there was something you know, deliberate in my mind that I was kind of... 
and, and I had met all these other teachers, you know, like, like I said, Norman Fisher, um, and Norman was the, you know, the diametric opposite of Joe. He was the ultimate kind of hugger and over-talker, and he wanted to go wild with every musical gesture and really get into the nitty-gritty of every single thing, you know? Uh, and he always wanted more, 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 more character, more involvement, right? Um, and that was the kind of teaching that I desperately needed. He was the first teacher in a way that encouraged me to rely on my own emotional life for interpreting. Is he the teacher who told you to think about the saddest moment in your life for one piece? That's right. We were playing a Beethoven cello sonata, some moment, and, and we weren't able to play it together. And he said to me, Jeremy, think of the saddest thing that you've ever felt in your life. But don't, don't, he said, don't tell anyone, don't say it. Just hold it in your mind and then play the music as if, it, as if that sadness was a baby you don't want to wake. You know? It's a pretty amazing image, actually, when I think about it. And, and indeed, it helped me to play at this slow, desperate tempo and to keep the spell. And then, of course, I put it in the book because I, I was in tears then, even now talking about it, I find it emotional to remember him saying that to me. It sounds like the kind of advice you'd give an actor. He was very much an actor, yeah, like a method actor kind of teacher, and I think still is, you know, he's a very active teacher to this day. And, uh, and, and he was way too much in a way. He kind of violated my sense of dignity and privacy at the piano, which I think is what I needed. How did he violate it? Well, he'd get up in your face, you know, just like scream in your face, you know, more. Or he would just like give you this demonic expression when you were trying to play a really difficult passage. And that, there I was trying to nail all the notes of the difficult passage. Whereas what his face was telling me was just let loose, you know. Stop, stop trying to be the good boy, the teacher's pet, and start trying to create some kind of great emotional drama here. Well, it's really been a pleasure to talk with you and I thank you very much for coming back to our show and for your music. Thank you, Terry. What a pleasure. We should end with some Mozart. You have an album of Mozart. That's your most recent album. Do you want to just choose a passage that you especially love? I think I'd choose the, the sort of middle of the last moment of 503. This is, uh, one of the, for me, one of the most beautiful passages that Mozart ever wrote. The middle of the rondo of his concerto in C major, 503. And uh, it's a, basically a love sextet between the piano and the winds with a simple melody, just three blind mice, three blind mice, over and over again, but with amazing and ravishing harmonies. Thank you.
That's Jeremy Dink at the piano from his album Circa 1300 to Circa 2000, 700 Years of Music. His new memoir is called Every Good Boy Does Fine. Terry spoke with him last month, but the interview was preempted on many stations for coverage of the confirmation hearings for Katanji Brown-Jackson. Coming up, John Powers reviews the new CNN documentary Navalny about the Russian dissident who was nearly murdered and is in prison now. This is Fresh Air. The new documentary Navalny presents a close-up look at Alexei Navalny, the dissident Russian lawyer who survived a murder attempt only to be sent to prison. The show airs Sunday on both CNN and CNN+. Our critic at large, John Power, says that if you're interested in what's going on in the world right now, you won't want to miss this real-life political thriller. In his valuable new book, The Age of the Strongman, Gideon Rockman argues that our world is dominated by populist leaders who are destroying democracy, in part by making a cult of their own leadership. He devotes his first chapter to the strongman he calls the archetype, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president-slash-dictator whose true nature is currently on display in Ukraine. Of course, Putin isn't shy about attacking his own citizens either. His top target is Alexei Navalny, the charismatic, media-savvy dissident who's been so effective at calling out the Kremlin's lies and corruption that Putin literally won't say his name. Navalny is the subject of a new documentary by Daniel Rohr that, while sometimes heavy-handed, is never less than compelling. Made before the invasion of Ukraine, entitled simply Navalny, it offers intimate, sometimes amazing access to the bravery and human cost of opposing a despot. Rather than offer a head-on summary of Navalny's career, the film centers on its most dramatic episode— In August of 2020, Navalny is flying from Siberia back to Moscow. We see footage from the plane, when he suddenly becomes deathly ill. The flight is diverted to Omsk, where he's taken to a hospital, whose doctors are weirdly reluctant to let his wife Yulia see him. Fearing a murder attempt, she and his colleagues fight to get him flown to a hospital in Germany. There, it's established that he'd been given a dose of Novichok, a deadly nerve gas known as Putin's signature poison. Once he starts to recover, Navalny and his team try to figure out who had tried to kill him. They hook up with the investigative journalist Christo Grotsev from the website Bellingcat, whom Navalny calls a, quote, nice, very kind Bulgarian nerd with a laptop. Hacking into flight manifests and so forth, Grotsev narrows down the possible killers, some of whom have been shadowing Navalny since 2017. In the film's most breathtaking moment, which I won't spoil, they get the smoking gun with the Kremlin's fingerprints on it. Here, Grotsev explains how Bellingcat set about finding the killers. We knew that the poison was Novichok. And Novichok, we had proven in the previous investigation, is only manufactured in this facility called the Signal Institute. The Signal Institute in Moscow works under the guise of a R&D center that develops advanced form of sports, nutrition, drinks. That's the legend. Yet they employ for this work 12 scientists whose only experience and background is in chemical weapons. Our hypothesis, this is the entity that actually provides the poison for the killers who travel around the world poisoning people with Novichok. 
While this investigation unfolds as excitingly as a thriller, Rohr is equally interested in providing us with a close-up portrait of the man inside the hero. We see Navalny's joy at feeding donkeys with his wife and his love for his son and tick-tocking daughter. We see his humor and brilliance on the stump. He gets a Russian crowd gleefully chanting that Putin is a thief. And we sense the fury that helps fuel him. At one point, a colleague tells him that in answering Rohrer's questions, his eyes are too angry. He needs to look kinder. Now, Navalny is not beyond reproach. Although he's grown more enlightened over the years, he's a somewhat unsettling past as a Russian nationalist. He once walked in a march that included neo-fascists, an action he still defends by arguing that to oust one as powerful as Putin, you must be willing to work with groups you don't fully approve of. In any case, one shouldn't be too critical of someone willing to risk everything battling oppressive authority. A certain messianic vanity and wildness comes with this territory. Navalny is obviously brilliant at channeling his rebelliousness, and his success as a YouTube provocateur shows the power of social media to challenge dictatorship. Putin clearly finds him threatening. After all, crowds turn up at the airport to greet Navalny on his return to Moscow. Yet we're also reminded that social media's soft power is rarely a match for the hard power of state repression, like the cops arresting and beating those supporters who turned up at the airport. Navalny exults that one of his videos gets a million views in an hour. Yet that doesn't stop Putin from putting him in prison. He's still there, serving a nine-year term, any more than the world's horrors stopped him from invading Ukraine. Late in the film, as he heads back to almost certain arrest in Russia, Navalny posts an inspiring video in which he declares that he's not afraid, and he urges his supporters, and us, not to be afraid either. Now, he doesn't really expect that we will all be as flamboyantly brave as he is. Few are. Yet as Volodymyr Zelensky and his fellow Ukrainians are proving right now, it's possible for ordinary people to be terrified by the malevolence of a tyrant like Putin and still muster the courage to fight him. John Powers reviewed the new documentary Navalny, airing Sunday on CNN and CNN+. Coming up, Kevin Whitehead pays tribute to jazz bassist Charles Mingus on the 100th anniversary of his birth. This is Fresh Air. One hundred years ago today, the great jazz bassist, composer, and band leader Charles Mingus was born in Nogales, Arizona. Jazz critic Kevin Whitehead says Mingus was a larger-than-life and often difficult figure, a complicated man of deep feeling whose music reflected his outsized personality. Mingus Fingers, 1948. Charles Mingus always thought big. He had big passions and appetites he exaggerated in his zingy autobiographical novel, Beneath the Underdog. A virtuoso bass player with a forceful sound, he liked big gestures and had big ambitions. In the 1940s, idolizing Duke Ellington, he'd record as Baron Mingus. Duke's example showed him how to blend a rich ensemble fabric with vivid solo voices. And the jazz art songs Billy Strayhorn wrote for Ellington 
left their mark on Mingus ballots, like 1946's Weird Nightmare. Weird Nightmare, take away this dream you've born. Weird Nightmare, mend the heart that's torn and has paid the cost of love a thousandfold. Bring me a love with a heart of gold. That was recorded in Los Angeles, where Charles Mingus came up. In New York in the 1950s, he had a breakthrough, reconciling divergent strains in contemporary jazz. He liked a busy texture and flirted with the polite brand of improvised counterpoint practiced by cool jazz musicians. Also in the 50s, a new wave of hard boppers flavored their jazz with proudly African-American shouts, blues, and gospel strains. That was just what Mingus needed. Now he wrote pieces with titles like Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting that caught the rollicking, call-and-response dynamics of the black church. On 1959's Monin, Pepper Adams's baritone sax preaches as five other horns murmur or shout support. coax such sounds from his players, Mingus would sing them their parts. The horns mirrored the timbre of his voice. The bassist made that connection between voices and instruments explicit in dialogues with bass clarinetist Eric Dolphy. Charles Mingus live on the French Riviera in 1960. By then, he was a bona fide jazz star. In 1962, he played himself in the jazz movie All Night Long, recorded a gloriously combative trio album with Duke Ellington and Max Roach, and played a famously chaotic concert-slash-open rehearsal at New York's Town Hall with an overstuffed band. That show ended when stagehands closed the curtains during an encore, but it yielded some unforgettable music. Mingus didn't shy away from politics. He wrote a lyric denouncing segregationist governor Orville Faubus that the major label Mingus recorded for wouldn't touch. He gave pieces polemical titles, Prayer for Passive Resistance, Remember Rockefeller at Attica. In the 1960s and 70s, Mingus toured extensively in Europe 
and it only seems like every concert he ever played there has been issued or bootlegged. Those recordings are still coming out. His bustling little bands sounded bigger than they were. His orchestral projects were that much more sprawling. This is Don't Be Afraid, The Clown's Afraid 2 from 1971. Mingus died of neurodegenerative disease in 1979 at age 56. His music has been played often since then, much but not all credit to his widow Sue Mingus, who assembled repertory groups like the Mingus Big Band. His centenary has prompted a bumper crop of reissued and rare recordings and an impressive array of tribute albums and concerts. Mingus music's continued currency makes sense. It's bluesy, heartfelt, intricate and infectious. The high spirits and passion are built in. Kevin Whitehead is the author of the book, Play the Way You Feel, The Essential Guide to Jazz Stories on Film. On Monday's show, we speak with actress Michelle Yeoh. She's starring in the new film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, a sci-fi mind and time-bending adventure comedy. It's her first lead in a Hollywood movie. She started her career in the mid-80s in action and martial arts films and was in the movies Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, the James Bond thriller Tomorrow Never Dies, and Crazy Rich Asians. Hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shorrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Tina Calacay. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies.